Timmy and he asked me if I wanted to dance. He looked real nice, so I thought I'd take him out of any chance. And he told me what to do. Then he whispered, I love you. And he said he loved me too. And then he kissed me. He kissed me in a way that I'd never been kissed before. He kissed me in a way that I want to be kissed forevermore. Every time, every time with you two. Don't you work? There we go. And he asked me to be his bride and always be right by his side. Uh, hi, folks. So today we're going to be talking about Chapter 2 of the making of global capitalism. But first, it'd be very difficult not to address the insane news cycle the last couple days when uh, some sort of, I don't know, it's like people go, people's minds go to conspiracy when they see this stuff that happened in Texas. But, I mean, is the conspiracy too create a narrative that totally affirms every critique of policing and police officers and the concept of cops that has ever been promulgated? And hell, maybe. Maybe that's what the strategy of tension really is about. Maybe they're realizing that there isn't enough tension because it's too asymmetrical. There's too much uh, built up on one side of the equation. Because remember, the strategy of tension uh, in uh, the 70s in Italy was about you know, increasing the uh, violent posture of both the left and the right. There's no, uh, there's no similar energy on the left. I mean, people talk about the riots or the uprisings or whatever, but those are cyclical carnival atmospheres. They don't persist into challenges to state authority the way that the right does, or, you know, become coterminous with state authority the way the right does. I don't know. It's wild. That's all I know. The cops now just telling people, hey, yeah, we just stood around. <laughs> we stood around for an hour. Stood around for an hour. People, were, Kids were calling in saying, save us, didn't do it, because we might have gotten killed. Wow. It really, it's, it's like, you know, giving somebody a gun doesn't magically not make them an American. If you give people a gun in the context of the United States where, you know, if you are uh, of the right demographic, your most sort of craven desires are reified into the definition of authentic freedom. You're not going to have, you're going to have, sure, a fantasy that we all get to absorb about selfless, heroic police officers. That's going to be what we get culturally, of course. But who's what is going to make someone act that way in the moment? 
Oh yeah, I should plug this. Someone pointed this out. So I did a uh, left wing lefty book club. Uh, the people who like do a Zoom call and they had me on as a guest and they had a bunch of very good questions. Uh, it's on. It's the audio is now on YouTube. Check it out if you haven't. If you'd like to hear some pretty good convo about some stuff, but uh, anyway. When you create the job of cop in America, all you're going to do is create a magnet for people who want to, who are terrified of the of the, their their fellow citizens, who view the world in a monarchian lens, where everybody is basically a threat, and not just uh, others, not just like racialized others, but basically anybody who would have a demand on you, you, anyone who would ask you to do anything that would inconvenience you, or to make your day less purely enjoyable by your own narrow lights. Uh, and then also the ability to stop any confrontation, win any confrontation because of your ability to have a gun and the fact that uh, you could basically kill anybody you want and get away with it. That incentive structure is not going to create heroes. The same way that there are no publicly minded people basically in politics anymore. No, nobody goes into politics and hasn't for 40 years thinking I'm going to I'm going to do anything to, to help others. They maybe have jerry rigged a world, uh, a, a justification where this whatever helps me also helps the world. But. I mean, increasingly, that's not even uh, intellectually viable. So people just become complete. Nihilist. Like, I think uh, that's an interesting distinction, I think, between the Obama Democrat Cotier, the people who were around him in Washington, and Biden's people. Like, the, the Obama people were, of course, just total dead eyed narcissist freaks who had no loyalty to each other, to, to each other, and, and were purely self seeking, but also did think that they were doing what was best for the country. They had convinced themselves that that uh, Obama's uh, craven triangulation is the only viable way forward uh, to reform American institutions in a positive direction. Nothing else can work, and everybody who says anything else can work is a child who doesn't know what's really going on. They had the West Wing as their like Bible, but like these guys, the runs around Biden, they have lost the illusion that they're. Uh, upholding anything other than their own resumes. I mean, Jen Psaki, what, spending six months doing some fucking Abbott and Costello routine with uh, Steve Ducey's inbred dunce son so that they can, this is an audition to go on MSNBC? So, yeah, so... uh, if, 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 if politics is you have to sit in a room like a nerd all day and talk about boring bullshit, uh, but you could get to rub elbows with famous people and maybe become one of those famous people or at least get to hang out with those famous people, that's going to draw a certain type of person. If you have a job that is, hey, uh, you get to boss other people around. You get to tell other people what to do. You get to basically you get to win every argument you've ever had. Because if you are one of these people who sees 
everyone around you is a potential sponge because there can be no selfless act. There can be no uh, uh, no instance where doing something for somebody else will do anything other than rob you of the precious and dwindling pleasures of your life. And that's a lot of people. That's the world that we have made. That is how people are trained to respond to the world around them. The only thing, the only, the only real thing is their own desires. Everybody else is the same way, which means that interaction, society, is a zero-sum game where somebody is going to benefit at your expense or you're going to benefit at somebody else's expense. And so every relationship is a conflict. And if that's the case, do you want to go into that unarmed without, without uh, the authority of the state backing you up? When you're, you know, having to fend off the, the pleas of others. I mean, if you're not a huge pussy, maybe you're okay with that. But if you're a giant fucking pussy, someone who is more of a coward than the average person, not less, not more brave, not a sheepdog, but more of a coward than the average person. I can't go out there and have all these arguments all day. Oh, my God. What if you had a gun, though? What if you had a badge and a gun, which meant you could never lose? Fuck, this is great. This is like going playing Contra with the fucking Konami code punched in. And it really tells you something. Like, when they say, I feared for my life when they're shooting somebody who didn't have a gun. And then they say, I feared for my life, which is why they didn't go and try to stop a guy from shooting children. You see that the only thing that matters is their life, which cannot be the job that we have created for them. Because the idea is that because of America's specific roughness, because of its frontier realities and its high crime, for whatever reason you want to argue, the police have to be a different breed. But that means that they have to be, given that responsibility— or, I mean, given that uh, authority, that power of the gun, then they have to be uh, willing to evince some degree of public-spirited motivation. Some degree of other people's needs are real. Other people are real. Spent 50, 60 years now guaranteeing every cop is somebody who can't even conceive of that. They've never even experienced it. The notion doesn't exist. This is, of course, on top of all the race. Like, we talk about, like, police as, like, slave patrols and racialized, and that's all a contributor. But that's on top of something that I think is even more basic, is that they do not think of themselves as as upholders of any kind of uh, social reality. They're just atomized freaks like the rest of us, but with guns and the power to kill. So that means when they see a guy with an IR-15 shooting things, fuck, I'm not going to get anywhere near that. Fuck that. I'm going to wait back here. And then I'm going to take out the, the feeling of impotence that I have being confronted with the fantasy in my head of who I am and finding it to be a fraud. Oh, good. Here's some fucking parents I can pepper spray and beat down. This, this feels right. This is... This is the thing where I get to do my job in a way that makes me feel powerful without, again, doing anything for anyone else, doing only for myself. 
And I, I honestly feel like a lot of people are thinking this is some Gladio stuff. Who knows? I have, I've decided that's a thing that uh, it's not worth trying to get a correct opinion on because it'll only be convincing to you. Like, if you can't really convince other people, I really don't buy. I think a lot of conspiracy-minded people believe that if they, they build something that is co- totally convincing to them, that they can show that to other people, and it'll, like, break through the bafflers of culture. But that's not how it works, because the even though you, your ship in that bottle might be perfectly, pristinely created, what the pieces you're using are... Uh, it's like in Jurassic Park where they have to put the frog DNA, right, to get the, the dinos because there's gaps. You're gap filling in a lot of gaps unknowingly with emotive logic and willed uh, like, like motivated reasoning. You can't get rid of that. Nobody is above that. And that means that everybody is going to confront your perfect ship of the bottle from the, with, with their own pre-existing uh, motivational matrices, which means you're not going to convince anybody of anything. All you're going to do is give yourself a project, basically. And the thing is, at the end of the day, if that's what you want, fine. Everybody needs a project. Go for it. But don't try to fucking yell at me and tell me that I have to affirm it. Anyway, it does seem like if we want to look at like a real crime here that is being covered up, it might be that they fucking shot these kids, or at least a good, or at least some percentage of them were shot by cops. Which would make sense. Spooked cowards with their own assault rifles having to deal with a fluid situation like that. I mean, have they, have they even said if he killed himself or the cop shot him or when? No way to believe anything they say, obviously. But even if that didn't happen, best case, and this is really why I think it had to have happened, because the story they are telling is one of the worst stories I've ever heard. The story that they're actually admitting to is one that you would imagine they would do anything to cover up, implying that this is like the halfway zone between what really happened and and what they would prefer people to think. The school cop? Thought a teacher was the shooter? How do you fuck you not know what the fucking teachers look like? Also, he probably wasn't carrying an assault rifle. That was funny when they put when they put out the statement. Uh, by the way, uh, all the kids got shot by him. Just so y'all know, no one was asking at that point. Of course, the real, I think the thing that twists the knife most of all is the knowledge that everyone has. And this is a thing that, that makes the subjective experience of like being of like helplessly strapped to this new cycle, like so many people are, just by upbringing and inclination. And that is like functionally different than just a little while ago is that having, I'm older than probably most of the people watching this older than, than the wired youth who are, like, most beaten down by the inevitability of reality. But in the, in the Bush era, there was a sense with every horror that was un, unleashed that there's a point, there's an inflection point where stuff gets it together, enough stuff happens, the, the reek becomes too much, 
And there's some event usually that takes all of the, the this uh, discontent and focuses it. And then that allows people, gives people a lodestar to move towards and then breaks up. Now, that didn't actually happen very often, but it was something that uh, a belief in could be sustained plausibly. That, that ability to sustain that belief is gone, which is why the Biden people are so much more, somehow even more reptilian than the, the Obama people were. You see all this stuff happen, and you see the cops just out here like, yeah, we just stood around like cowards. The only time we leapt into, leapt, leapt into action was to prevent parents from trying to save their kids. And, and we applied all of our non-lethal tactical kinetic op, uh, opportunities to do so. And no, you can see that and know that it's not going to really matter. Saw somebody, I saw Tim Poole say, oh, this is what you get when you defund the police, incompetent officers. Boom. There you go. Worst case scenario, they hang out these cops to dry as an example of what happens when you don't give cops enough money. It's like there are all these ramparts you can fall back to. Like they would prefer to make everyone think the cops are heroes forever. Fucking John Cornyn on, on at the Senate going, their their bravery was unflagging. Yeah, sure. Uh, but if that's not sustainable, if the story sticks around long enough to keep people, uh, it's and this is the thing. The story kicks around, and it's not that there's actual pressure mounting behind the narrative. It's simply that the people who are supposed to respond to this from the right are being forced to respond to it because people won't shut the fuck up about it. And you can only say the same thing so many times. You can only reaffirm cops are heroes so many times in the face of more and more things being revealed. So eventually, just to mix things up, you have to fucking find a new, uh, a new rampart to retreat to. And that is what makes horrors so galling is that even even the stuff that like breaks out of satire that breaches any of our you know most heavy-handed narrative imaginings of how bad this is, how bad cops are, how awful it is to have these guys uh the only fun- uh functional as in like fully funded and operative social uh institution You can have it put right in front of your face and just the, the, the driving force of events and of our need to, you know, keep our heads down to survive prevents us from turning it into anything other than free-floating uh, angst. It's grim, folks. It's all very grim. And how did we get to this point? Here's a nice little segue. We got to this point thanks to the establishment of a global regime of capitalism uh, in uh, the aftermath of the, the big class war of the 20th century that uh, rippled through the world from, the, from, the sh- from 1914 to 1945. Uh, 
We had a situation there where the the Christ, the crisis ridden heart of capitalism was fully exposed, uh, where the reality of capitalisms, capitalism developing along national lines, which is where it always, which is where it always, which is how it always developed everywhere. Uh, this that this is the fundamental insight of this book and their approach is that uh, capitalism it has to be wedded to a state project in order to get off the ground and to and to really sink its uh, tendrils into a given like social structure. But that model will get you to a, de- a pretty developed capitalism pretty quickly, miraculously quickly, but it's breaking all historical uh, uh, patterns for technological innovation uh, and capital accumulation. But while doing that, you're increasing conflict between these states. That conflict explodes in basically endemic violence, endemic warfare on the European continent from the, from the 17th to the 19th century until, uh, until the Pax Britannica created by the uh, imposition by the British of a rudimentary world polit- uh, capitalist system that would uh, rope in all of the uh, resource-rich foreign parts of the world into a European consumption zone, European and American to a degree. But at that point they were consuming their own. They, they didn't really need this. Europe though did. Uh, that consumption zone was fed by this colonial uh, machine that was perfected by the British. And there they imposed this fantasy that capitalism is based on. Uh, that there is a distinction between the economy and the state on the entire world. And all these European powers, they went out, created their own empires. Uh, But some of them were late to the party, either developmentally like Russia or to the spoils of empire like uh, Germany. And that meant that conflict over those resources uh, was going to over it, it was going to overwhelm the you know discrete state preference for capitalism for stability and uh, and create a fucking giant world war and that would have been the end of capitalism I I, I, I think it would have been if it wasn't for the United States. The United States, because of its geographic uh, distance, because of its specifically uh, effective machine for expropriating uh, foreign lands and processing it into a polity as opposed to keeping it as separate colonies, was essentially taking all of the uh, taking people who were built by that capitalist struggle, the, the struggle of capitalism to come into being in Europe, taking the people thrown off from that process, the people who one way or another were losers, 
They were either spiritually repelled by it, like our early Puritan forebears, or they were economically dispossessed. They're, they couldn't farm the land anymore. They couldn't find work in the cities. And instead of taking that alienation and putting it to a political end, which is what the ones who stayed in Europe did and created the, the, the socialist movement that defined politics for the next hundred years, the ones who came to America were, for the most part, went to the business of expressing that alienation on an other whose resources were then brought in and distributed. That's the important thing. You didn't just have, you know, workers, in, hyper-exploited workers in, in, in the cities of Europe gaining, you know, access to cheap, uh, ex- cheap imports, which they did, but in a context of low, uh, you know, declining wages or being pushed off the land, they were being given land. They, a, a, the, the numbers game that favored, cap, that favored socialism in Europe was totally overturned in America because you create a new class, a class of smallholders who are able to, who are able to perpetuate over huge swaths of the country, which was simply impossible in Europe because the land was spoken for. And that means that the state that the United States builds in the 19th century, while the gears of war are getting ready to just destroy everything in Europe, uh, is one that perpetuates to the best and most transparent degree of any of the Western states uh, a fantasy distinction between between economy and state. Because of the, of the yeoman fantasy at the heart of American political identity. We don't need the government doing things because I will succeed in the market on my own luck uh, and skill. God's will, God's providence is going to be going to determine how I do. And if you succeed, which most people are going to, you're going to adhere to the system. If you fail, you will likely fall into the gears of the thresher and your opinion no matter counts. It cannot come together with other opinions to change, to move the wheel of politics. And it's certainly not in a way that could overawe the unified interest of those smallholders who all want to maintain an American freedom that involves just ritually disavowing a huge percentage of what the goddamn government does. And that is why we have this on um, this tradition, this myth of the American weak state. Because we only look at what our ideology tells us to look at when we look at what the state is doing. The state is directing a huge project this whole time, a continent-spanning imperial machine. But its political structures are relatively weak because of the Constitution and because of the plant right and the yeoman ideology that uh, that uh, defines American political subjectivity, but 
But the reality of building this, this industrial machine, the reality of building the sort of huge working classes in the cities of the East that they had avoided until that point meant uh, that formal political regulatory structures of government were going to have to be introduced, which is where you get finally the, the, uh, the Federal Reserve System in 1913, the U.S. lagging behind all the European countries and creating a central bank for that for, because of this very thing. But because of this relative lack of class conflict in the United States, and I say relative, remember, we had the most violent working class movement of any of these countries, but that violence was mostly on the part of the state. This is part of that dichotomy. This weak American state is using its structures to impose violence on its rest of working class in a way that its European uh, counterparts could never manage. When war comes to Europe, the United States is not dragged into it. The United States is not forced into it because the United States has not had to engage in the alliance system to protect its colonial holdings because it's got the fucking Monroe Doctrine and it's got informal, already by this point, informal quasi-imperial economic and commercial relationships with Latin American countries that don't require occupying forces that don't require them to be part of like the general map of the empire that has to be balanced against the other imperial interests. And that the reality of those European powers having to go to war and essentially setting fire to all their fucking capital means that the United States goes from being one of the biggest debtor countries in the world to the biggest creditor crediting, uh, basically funding the entire Allied war, war uh, effort. There was some money given to the Germans, but it was disproportionately given to the Anglos because of the specific, uh, because of the intimate relationship between American finance capital and the city of London. Because, as I said, in the 19th century, there was a, uh, a, 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 the precursor to the post-World War II global capital, capitalism was the, uh, the the British headquartered uh, uh, imperial efflorescence of the 19th century. And that was all uh, premised on the gold standard of the Bank of England. That is a big reason that we had a failed reconstruction in this country. I know I talked about it on Hell of Presence. I hope I emphasized this enough and I didn't just gloss over it. But one of the real things hampering reconstruction and any kind of uh, meaningful uh, expansionary federal policy towards, you know, increasing capital uh, uh, production in the United States was that the United States was the biggest trade, was a huge trading partner with uh, England. We did, we, we, we were part of a, uh, a triangle of, of, of textile manufacture that was like deeply connected and, and power the world economy because it's like, it's cheap food and clothes that power uh, the, the global trade network at that point. Uh, and those, all those exchanges were pegged to this, the pound sterling, to the, to the gold-backed uh, British pound. 
which meant the United States would look at unfavorable trade uh, balances if it started to inflate its currency outside of the gold standard. So that means that when it's time to fund uh, a side in this war, who are we going to back? Well, of course, we're going to back England because most of these American uh, finance firms are intimately connected to England. They're, they have offices there. They, they, they are on the phone. They're on the thing all the time in a way that they aren't with other, uh, other European uh, finances, finance structures. I mean, Bismarck said uh, the most consequential event, the, the most consequential fact of the 20th century will be that the United States speaks English. Uh, and that is, you know, fundamentally true. Like there was a revolution, but there was never a real severance of the economic ties between England and the United States, which meant that we ended up backing one side in this war. And when that side won, thanks in some part to our intervention, which is why we intervened, this should not be controversial at this point, fucking you can stick your Lusitania and your fucking Zimmerman letter up your fucking ass. The reason we went to war is because we had the entirety of the Allied balance sheet and we didn't want that money to go up in fucking smoke. I want to talk about a, a classic bit of propagandizing of American youth, the fact that you learn about World War I if you do it all, and the reason we went into it is because they signed the Lusitania, which happened two years before that and a year before the election the, where Woodrow Wilson kept his seat in the White House by telling people he kept us out of war. That's how much people were dying to invade Europe after we, they sank the Lusitania. What it means then is that after the war, the United States is the creditor. The United States holds all the balance of, of, of monies. And Wilson, being a, a dialable internationalist, a guy who saw the future, who saw that, oh, to avoid capitalism just smashing the world into pieces every time there is a crisis, which is inevitable because it's cyclically, uh, it's, it's baked into the premise of capitalism, cyclical crises. They are not, you cannot resolve these cyclical crises through violence which is the only way you can do it, by the way, if you're not going to have a revolution internally. You have to have a war with somebody else or you have a, a class war inside your borders. That's just, for the prolonged enough crisis, that is what happens. And that in, a world, in, a, in, in, uh, in an industrial society with industrial means of death, you just can't have that. Can't have it, Henry. Can't have it. Can't have them commiserating, doing war in, in Europe. Can't have it. And so you have the League of Nations, but you also have this attempt to impose American notions of economic liberalism, capitalism, the market, separate from states, the, 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 the structures of the marketplace, self-reinforcing, not reinforced by states. All fantasy, of course, but a necessary fantasy, and this is the important part, a fantasy that creates certain legal regimes. We live under a legal regime that is created by the, not by any kind of law, logic, but 
but by reference to a fundamental existential belief, which is that there is a meaningful, metaphysically meaningful distinction between the state and the economy. And when you believe that, laws flow from that. The the sancticity of property, of all else, being the main one and the one that the U.S. imposed on the rest of Europe. Not only that, though, because the United States is now also the only country that's bringing in foreign money as opposed to having currency going out in reparations or in debt repayment, oh, my God, they're building an industrial economy, a huge one, which begins exporting to Europe and creating a new standard for like what the political pursuit, what the political project of mainstream politics is. It is achieving an American level of consumption. Like in, and uh, uh, and the and the boys. What are the name? Panich, Pandan. That's it. Uh, Pandich and Grandin. Panich and Grandin. What the boys here point out is that the twenties are thought of again, sort of uh, in the cliche as this era of isolationism, when the U.S. turned its back on world obligations, which is absolutely not true. Yes, they said no to the League of Nations, but the U.S.'s role in financing the post-war economy is such, and in imposing regulatory regimes and standards of consumption is such that we are basically rebuilding Europe the same way we did after World War II. But because we are at an earlier level of, of, of political development, it cannot be the sort of uh, organized project that that was in part because, you know, there was no real existential threat in the form of the Soviet Union. It had just been birthed into being. It was racked with civil war uh, and endemic uh, famine. Nobody, you could use the Red Scare to deport some fucking, you know, Polacks, but you couldn't use it to really uh, organize your state project. So what they did instead is they set up the rudiments of a global economic structure that were not strong enough, though, to withstand another real test, another real stressor, another crisis. And that's exactly what happened. You have this American-inspired, globalized system of political uh, authority, the League of Nations, and this new trade network based on the U.S. dollar, not the British pound, uh, and based on American legal uh, authority and American industrial policy. And it's kind of gearing itself into something, but then once the crisis of 29 hits, all of those uh, tenuous connections fail because the internal pressure in the societies explode. And that has to go somewhere. And it can either go towards real class war or it can go outward, which means all of these capitalist democracies, which had just seen themselves, or capitalist democracies, which had just seen themselves blow themselves to smithereens and said, never again, the war to end all wars, as soon as bad conditions reappear, look inward and start imagining uh, a way out of the crisis that involves domination of others' land, domination of other people, war again, 
with even greater degrees of technological uh, uh, power behind it. And so that means the whole thing blows up again. And when the Johnny come lately is inevitably lose, which they had to because they were late. Japan, Germany, sorry, you were late to the teat, which means you could not develop the capacities to stand against the big boys. Certainly not the United States at that point. Which was never going to join your team because the the uh, incredibly sharp social conflicts that fascism emerged to channel were much less intense in the United States. They were still there, but it was just much less intense because of the, the yeoman reality that people lived, even if they didn't think of it that way. And that is why the U.S. was not in a position to actually impose a genuine global capitalism after World War I and why the state that was built through the crisis of the Depression and then the war was finally at the point where its state capacities were developed enough to do that. Because the, the, what, what happens is, is that in the United States, the yeoman fantasy is, is fatally ruptured for the time being, not overcome, like we don't stop believing in the yeomanry, but our connection between what the yeoman fantasy means and its uh, and like political prescriptions is broken. Like we still all think we're yeoman after the depression starts, but all of a sudden, a lot more of us are motivated to think of a way that actually being a yeoman and having government intervention in the economy are, are compatible. And of course they do, because. The thing that sustained it for so long was how many people who were doing basically okay. In the United States, there were way fewer of them than ever. And the people who were doing poorly were more able to organize themselves than any previous group of miserable and dispossessed Americans. And they impose from below this new understanding of like what's possible in the yeoman society. And then you got Franklin Delano Roosevelt up there frantically putting it to the work of saving democracy or of saving capitalism. And this is why it's always pointless to try to say whether presidents are good or bad in some metaphysical sense. Because every good thing you can say about FDR, you can also point out, you can just boil down to, oh, he did all that stuff so that we would not have the socialist revolution we needed. And he didn't want that because he didn't want to lose his fancy house in Hyde Park and he didn't want to lose his ivory fucking cigarette holders and he didn't want to not get hand jobs from his cousin while driving a fucking Stutz Bearcat by the Hudson River. True, true, true. But the one place that communism had succeeded in the, in the world had turned into a goddamned charnel house for 20 years. And you could say, oh, that's not fair. They were fighting for their lives. Sure. But the way we're going to see that is going to be determined by other things beyond our, con our conscious mind. So, like, we're going to think that's a bad thing to avoid morally, even if it's really motivated by our material interests. We can't tell the difference. So was he a good or bad guy for preventing a revolution that we needed to have happen very much? He didn't. He didn't think it would have been good. He would have thought it would have been show trials and starvation in the United States. 
was he wrong in that? I think so. If if capitalism, if 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 the Soviet Popular Front had, which broke up after World War II, uh, into separate camps, if it had been held together at the top points by people in the Western governments who were basically useful idiots for communism. They could have met the uh, Soviets halfway to maintain like an actual global structure that took the lessons of uh, the war, which were, oh, this distinction between political and economic is made up because look at how much we were able to do that we always would have said before is against democracy, is, is, is against our, my freedom. We all let it happen. We all helped it happen. We enthusiastically built this state that has this capacity to do so. Well, then, my God, cannot we also put it to the task of feeding the hungry? Can we also put it to the task of, uh, of, of ending the spurious relationship between survival and access to resources which have already been divvied up by fucking gangsters? But of course, because FDR is a useful idiot, he doesn't know that uh, like a huge chunk of the people around him are either actual Soviet agents, conscious communists, or liberals who are so liberal that they are rooting for communism, even though they're too uh, they're too squeamish to really take the plunge. McCarthy was right about this. It's just, it was a good thing, not a bad thing. Uh, that, like, the revolution that he was afraid of might have never come. There would have been blood in this, there would have been violence, but it would have had the same progressive character as World War II had. That's the, the reason that we all, everybody in America, our entire thing is based on World War II. Not only is it because it, it birthed our material prosperity in the post-war era, <coughs> but because it gave us a narrative of, 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 uh, of, Heroic victory where selflessness is rewarded. That's what I'm saying. Remember, we were talking earlier about how these pig cops won't do anything selfless because they have lived in a world their entire life where selflessness has never been rewarded. And at the end of the day, we are reward seeking animals. Now, we aren't only reward seeking animals, but that reward seeking matrix is the only thing that gets socially reinforced. Everything else just sort of like lingers like a ghost in our body and that we, we just like pick up. Once in a while, and we can maybe see reflected in art, and maybe can like push us to to do something we wouldn't have thought possible in moments of like extreme stress, but which we cannot reproduce socially. The U.S. selflessly saved the world from fascism and was rewarded with the greatest rise in human prosperity in world history. Now, of course, it was based on exploitation of the periphery, and and, and it was more the yeoman expropriation. But from the center, it didn't look like that. From the center, it was heroism rewarded. And a, a global conflict that instead of the Cold War we got between states with this capitalist group and this socialist group, all playing by the rules create, and we'll get to this in the next part of the book, all playing by the rule book written by the capitalists which is what doomed the project. 
It was all a rear guard action until 1989, as soon as, as, soon as the, the, uh, the treaty with capitalism is signed. Because the reason the Americans and the European leftists signed on to that is because they were tired of war, and it had been horrible. They wanted a chance to build something peacefully. And here was a chance to build something peacefully, cooperate with the Soviets. If they kept doing it, it's not like it would have been violent without violence. It would have been tremendously violent. But instead of the petty misery and awfulness and eventual, uh, eventually catastrophically cascading war crimes of the Cold War that soiled everyone involved, it would have been the, the countries of the world splitting into camps themselves and fighting a real war. But the fighting of that war would have been the continuation of World War II. And the victory in that war would have created a society of people dedicated to ideas of self-interest that included a collective. They would have reintegrated the political and the economic in their mental heuristic for processing the universe. The new man of socialism would have been forged out of that. But what we got instead was the Cold War, because at the end of the day, we are all fucking weak, and we are all fucking sinners. The Russians didn't want to fucking keep fighting. Nobody wanted to keep fighting. Not when there was another way. And sure, they were signing the keys. They were signing their own death warrant, uh, saying, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll procure the world commodities we need to maintain our uh, capital development, our capital accumulation and, and, and intensification of technology and all this stuff. We're going to acquire those on a world market that is priced in your currency. Currency that is fixed to the same uh, ritualized p- political fantasy that uh, that there is a distinction between uh, economics and, and politics. So this chapter in uh, in Pandan is about how. Almost how the U.S. finds itself building the state capacity through the necessity of dealing with the Great Depression and then the necessity of fighting World War II uh, with this, this bureaucratic and administrative capacity, even though it had been fought all along by, by white, right-wing reaction in the courts and in, in the streets, uh, and honestly, by the propaganda that it infected the minds of the top uh, New Dealers. Like, FDR was a self-interested politician. He wouldn't have done anything that he thought would have worked. And the reason that he turned to austerity in 1936, in the face of all evidence that the economy needed more stimulus, not less, was because he thought existentially that you cannot run budget deficits. Now, you can say, oh, he believed that because that's a, a load-bearing pillar of this ideology of, of liberal uh, p- capitalism. Sure, but he didn't fucking know that. 
for him, this was a this was a fact of economic law. This is like gravity. This isn't an opinion. You can't run budget deficits. And then they fucking after getting the the, the thirty, I said thirty six, thirty seven, obviously because the election was in thirty six. But as soon as they got the biggest mandate that anyone had ever gotten in the in the era of popular elections, the biggest landslide. If you want, if you're a, if you're a liberal or leftist or anybody with any kind of vestigial relationship to you know the the uh, the grand American uh, political left tradition, go and take a look at that nineteen thirty six uh, electoral college map. We're the only two states that went to uh, poor, poor Alf Landon uh, were Vermont and Maine because of the, of the deep partisan uh, relationship between the Republican Party and Old New England. Uh, there were, there, before that point, there had been a slogan in American politics, as Maine goes, so goes the nation, which is, of course, you know, when Republicans are just dominating the Electoral College for the entire half century, yeah, no shit. Uh, and James, Far- uh, James Farley, uh, FDR's postmaster and chief uh, uh, machine boss, he was basically the national machine boss for the, for, the, uh, for the Democratic Party. You had, you know, like Tammany Hall in New York and the Pendergrasts in St. Louis who, or in Kansas City who... Uh, Fucking literally, they drafted fucking Harry Truman, like he was a promising uh, like point guard from Slovenia. They're like, hey, Harry Truman, you, you can st- wind wind a stem, come here and run for Senate. And the national version of that was this guy, uh, Mc- James Farley. And after that election, he said, you know the saying, uh, as Mo- as Maine goes, so goes Vermont. He got a big laugh, but anyway, after that. They pivot to austerity because they have a self-limiter in their minds that goes beyond uh, uh, anything. And that, that's why we have to describe people making choices in like a moral uh, context. But how do you judge somebody on what they don't know? What is lying beneath even their like, like it's, it's, it's a tough one. And that's, Honestly, why I think it's usually not very useful to talk in those words. So they were willing to let the, the, the Great Depression just continue and continue without really recovery because of these ideological blinders until war. War breaks out. Oh, boy. Now we have to go. We have to bet deficit spend. We have to have an unbalanced budget. And then after the war, of course, well, now we have to fight the Cold War. We have to fight the Soviets, so we have to keep having it. And now it's gone. The, the regulator is gone because of the necessity of the fight, because of the necessity of the, of the existential threat. If you don't have an existential threat, it's not going to change. It has to be forced to change. From an existential threat, from a, for some combination of existential threats from outside and internally. The left, broadly, in the United States and outside of it. But first, of course, the Nazis is like the greater threat that all, everybody from the, from like conservatives, basically, to communists got on the same side because of the greater threat of the fascists. Uh, Which boils down, again, to affinity with English traditions and English culture 
uh, and also a genuine, uh, like old old fashioned colonial conflict with the Japanese in the Pacific. Yes, uh, someone says talks about Bancor. Uh, Keynes at uh, Bretton Woods proposed a global currency used only for exchange called the Bancor. And the United States said no dice. They insisted. And what's wild is one of the guys who made that insistence was this guy, Harry Dexter White, one of the chief negotiators at Bretton Woods, one of the guys who insisted, no, we're using the American dollar. It is now, uh, I think, after the Verona cables uh, were uh, or the Ferrona files were uh, released after the fall of the Soviet Union, it became known that Harry Dexter White was an actual communist agent. As in, he reported to the Kremlin. Now, you'd think, why would you do that? Because at that point, those guys thought that they were going to overthrow the United States from within. They genuinely thought that they were going to get in there through either FDR or Henry Wallace and overthrow capitalism behind its back through its political structures. Now, that's probably not what would have happened. There would have been a shooting war long before that. But that's a fantasy that a white-gloved uh, Ivy League motherfucker like that needs to have because he can't countenance the prospect of real violence that he might be threatened with or the people he actually cares about being threatened with. Americans, in other words. And again, why wouldn't he believe it? Bretton Woods starts negotiating in 1944. FDR is still in office. He's basically like, he's a he's dying, but even as he's dying, he is backing the left in all the main arguments. I don't know, like when the, the question of like, what do we do with these former uh, ter- these like for the on uh, the question of like, what do we do with these foreign um, with these former colonies? What do we do about international copyright? What do we do about uh, perpetuating like the military structures we've built here during the war? FDR was backing the left on all of them. No, let's not do an international U.S. enforced uh, uh, intellectual property regime uh, that's going to like concentrate uh, technological innovation into the hands of the U.S. military. Is what ended up happening because of that. We're not going to give these fucking colonies back to these goddamn European powers. Now it's it's not a it's not a total like run of W's, but the drift is clear. These guys, and as I said, there's cop Soviet agents or uh, Simon Pure fellow travelers like uh, Henry Wallace all around. Now again, they might be they probably were wrong about that. Flip the flip the uh, a coin, have a butterfly do its wings, and FDR doesn't die. The, con- the, 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 the conflict between the political apparatus that they represented, from the communist agents and, and fellow travelers at the top to all of the, the, the people who have jobs within the government who align with those views, then the center of gravity of like sort of liberal public opinion, which is very malleable. And then you've got the uh, radicalized and non-radicalized working class uh, we're operating through the organs of their labor unions. So that is a structure within the society. And eventually the rest of that society 
that is uh, connected explicitly to the interests of capital as such uh, would have come into awareness of the threat and would have heightened the degree of conflict. Now, that is what they ended up doing, but because of the the decapitation of the movement, uh, it doesn't have to be open violence. Instead, we get the second Red Scare, this coordinated, coordinated assault by capital in through all of its nodes of control, within the military, within the police structures, within the bureaucracy, within the political structures, and the media, to say there's communists are an existential threat and have to be wiped out. And basically the same thing that happened in uh, Indonesia, uh, but because of the lesser degree of actual class conflict, because of that free real estate and that yeoman uh, tradition, as opposed to a bunch of people packed onto islands who've been subject to colonial exploitation their entire lives, and who who see in the communist movement a coordinated rejection of colonialism, you got to chop the tall trees in that case. In America, you just have McCarthy go out there, you have Nixon go out there, you make a bunch of fucking movies and TV shows, I Married a Communist, and then from there, the people do their own work. People, Everyone else in all these structures that are filled with communists do their own work and start purging them out of self-interest. Like at the level of the of the labor unions, the uh, the reformist types who purged the communists again, they thought they were doing what was best for the working class. They thought that. Now, why did they think that? Because they didn't want to go to war. They wanted to keep their cushy fucking jobs. They wanted to stay in the union hierarchy. They wanted to do that while advancing the, the interests of the working class. So they could feel good about their fucking life choices and their and their treats and rewards they got as a result of them. And so they say, for the good of the working class, and they have their own reasons that they've made up, you know, oh, it's not worth the fight, or, oh, they're too radical, or, or oh, uh, they're fighting for something bad, or, or they're, or they're going to, this is the real one, we're going to lose anyway, do we want to have the entire working class destroyed, or do we want to save that which uh, is most effective at, like, making the lives of our workers better. And even if we're like real radical types like Walter Reiter, for example, who really do have like a socialist horizon, we still imagine, well, we'll get them next time. Got to get these communists out of here because they're upsetting the apple cart and us good guys will get it together. Of course, times change, people change. And when the real conflict moment comes, those people have been replaced by people who have um, come into a cynical structure that has no horizon of utopian vision and therefore no ability to get anybody to do anything for anybody's benefit but their own. To sacrifice, the necessary element of any successful social movement is sacrifice. That is the ingredient that makes a collection of people who think a certain way into a group of people capable of exerting political power is sacrifice. And nobody wants to sacrifice because nobody has ever seen it pay off. So they can't even create a world, a narrative, where there's a benefit to it. And this is why I, always, I think of the failure of socialism not as the result of any specific cause, because I feel like that just doesn't get at it. Uh, it is beyond causation it is determined by like the 
the contours, as William Appleman William, Williams called them, of history. Imagine uh, collectively, like imagine imagine the amount, imagine it as a, uh, as like a, a, a math equation. I'm not very good at math, but let's see if we can do this. Like, let's, let's say like, okay, you know, uh, what, uh, what if the Bolsheviks, something had gone differently? Or what if, you know, uh, FDR doesn't die? Or, or what if there isn't a cultural turn? What if all the hippies, what if all the liberal, what if all the, uh, the college hippies don't decide to uh, start talking about themselves all the time? Or, or what if we decide to do feminism? Any of these emanating questions is blaming after the fact for the fact that there is an equation here. You have capitalism in, uh, imposing X amount of influence over the human, uh, the human organism. That, that, that influence is distributed throughout the people on earth in, different, in greater, lesser degrees. At the very closest points to capitalism, the nodes of transmission, uh, the amount of consent, like uh, adherence to capital, is basically existential. These people have, they're archons. They've turned themselves into the machine because the, being next to it gives them every benefit, every selfish pleasure they could ever want, every horizon of the self they could ever pursue. Where you're getting screwed at the periphery, it's very light, but it, and it's mostly just I don't want to die. It's it's coercion. That amount of energy is 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 being di- per- distributed through that system by a feedback loop of the world, the world, the global material, the material world being grasped by humans and put towards uh, use. That's building a world that we live in. That's building, the, that's building our demiurgical reality. Then there's everybody. Everybody is interacting with this thing. They're all touched by this thing one way or the other. But the touch of it, the, the cold alien touch of it, creates this anxiety. It creates sadness. It creates uh, uh, misery. It creates resentment. It creates guilt among those who uh, benefit from it in one way or another. Alienation is the word to encompass everything I just said. But it's not enough to say, oh, once you get to X amount of alienation, then the people will be able to overthrow the influence of Y amount of energy that is being generated by this, uh, this machine, which has people pull resources into its maw according to its programming, which is capital accumulation. That is the algorithm that runs the machine, capital accumulation. What you have is at the very top, at the very most important nodes of this, are people who also are fully motivated, down to their core, by capital accumulation. So they're going to just do what they want no matter what. And then they direct the efforts of others who are, to one degree or another, alienated from that goal, but whose alienation is overthrown by coercion and consensus and, and consent-making from within, for, from the center. Because at the end of the day, those are the same thing. You coerce somebody until they realize that it's in their best interest not to do not to not to to keep obeying, because they have a deeper interest, an interest in survival and grasping the meager benefits of living in the free real estate society, the free refill society that capitalism creates at the center. 
And then on the outside, people are just getting totally uh, alienated. At some point, there'll be enough alienation to spread throughout all these people that they'll overthrow it. But that isn't true because they have to coordinate their activity. And the thing that coordinates their activity is also an algorithm. It is also a program that runs deeper than any discrete interest that one might think one has. And that algorithm is, we are all in this together. That algorithm is, uh, there is a interest of the self that extends beyond the self, which is the opposite of the profit motive, which is literally take surplus from others and hold it. It is take from others. The only thing that would beat that is a machine, a social machine made up of people, less technology but more bodies to make up for the lack of technology, motivated by that opposite algorithm. Well, what builds that algorithm in the self is um, seeing solidarity rewarded enough to live in pleasure with others, live in unalienated pleasure with others. And that becomes a selfish urge. Wanting that is selfish the same way that the capitalist is selfish in that it is what one immediately imagines is the best sensory experience of the self, but that's also, that's also inextricably the pleasure of others. Because what capitalism promises is total control within a space of only the self. And if there are people there, they are not recognized as such. Sallow, basically. Which why fascism will always eat itself, will always cannibalize itself. It can never be a stable basis for a social order. And that is why there's no truck to be had with the fucking uh, uh, trad nit nitwits uh, who think that they can nationalize, do some national socialism. Uh, you have not gotten rid of the capitalist engine of social order. You've only ex taken it to its furthest extent. The liberals want to do the same thing, you fucking idiots. You're digging the same grave from opposite ends. You're both building, you think you're building a world that's going to bring about either some national socialist utopia or a diversified tech campus where everybody is perfectly, um, all, all uh, privileges totally balance each other. Because at the end of the day, all they want to see is a mirror. It's all they want to see is a reflection. So this did to happen. This was prophesied by Marx, and it did occur. This, this recognition started to spark through people because they lived those conditions as workers. They suffered those alienations together. It focused their, their, their minds in the same direction to allow them to go to a union hall and listen to somebody give a speech and feel like they want to be there. Feel like it's what they want to do. Not that they're sacrificing to do it, which is what politics is now. People who want, want to go on the left are sacrificing to be on the left. And I know I said, oh, sacrifice has to come. But this is the thing. If you come to politics willingly and not as a hair shirt, it means that when the time to sacrifice comes, it won't feel like a sacrifice. It will be the thing you wanted to do. It will be not the thing that there was nothing else in your mind to do.
And that is heroism. That's all heroism is. And that is why those cops were incapable of it. There's no world you could live in where they would voluntarily step into some AR bullets. Because the thought of dying on someone's behalf does not mean anything to them. And it's what this builds is it builds armies that are going to fight for each other. Armies that are going to fight with full motivation like the fucking Chinese communists. My God. Um... It's going to build civil services that are not corrupt. It's going to build people in bureaucratic institutions that are going to not take a dollar to screw somebody over. And those, they build up. But here's the thing. Everybody's getting alienated by capitalism, right? All, all, all in life, people are sparking against capitalism and sparking against each other and building moments that define their lives. And amongst those people... You're getting these nodes of like, hey, these connective nodes of like, hey, going to the union hall. This means something to me. Voting for a Democrat. This means something to me. Holding a fucking gun in the Red Army means something to me. Going on, these things mean something existentially to me. They define me in a way. I'm not alienated from them. I'm not doing them out of obligation. I have adhered and grafted my self-interest to this group of people's self-interest. Those feelings exist, but they do not define everybody. They just hold in a moment, and they help define our understanding of concepts. But all of the other self-interested stuff that comes from being a liberal subject and prioritizing their, your own um, pleasure over others, it's still all there in all of us. And we are always being making our decisions not through one lens or the other, but feeling them all simultaneously. One of them, at the crucial moment, provides the tipping point. When the crucial moment comes, for the most part, what our intellectual and neurotic, our neurotic intellectual culture is, is living in the space of powerlessness and fantasizing about what we believe in a, in a totally neutral field, which is, of course, what the Internet provides for us. Because the real moment of Christ, the real moment is one where you have to ask a question. Am I going to do something for somebody else? Am I going to do something that uh, undermines my short term sensory self-interest? Now, as I said, true sacrifice, the heroic sacrifice, is one where that isn't a sacrifice. That isn't not, it might, like, there's the objective fact that life's going to get to be bad in the next minute for you. Like, you're going to have to have an unpleasant, at the lowest level, it's you're going to have to sit in a boring meeting, or you're going to have to have an unpleasant conversation. But at a higher level, it's like, you're going to have to, like, fight a cop during a fucking strike. Or you're going to have to go into a building and take a bullet for somebody. And none of us, we're all afraid of that moment and what, uh, what type of person will reveal itself. And so we try to stay from that real point, the point of like do or die, living or death, massive actual physical pain uh, or not. And we like to stick in the theoretical zone and just push in one direction or another to try to like see out, okay, I made the right decision there. But we're always, this thing inside of us is always balancing the the narrow self, the liberal self, and the greater spirit that we're connected to. And so what was needed to defeat capitalism in that 20th century conflict was not why amount of alienation throughout the system. It was why amount of alienation throughout the system minus the alienation that gets absorbed by selfish interest. Because that will 
like a fucking magnet will pull people towards uh, being corrupt, trying to uh, imagine a politics that uh, advantages them by explicitly uh, uh, depriving somebody. And this is the important part. Depriving somebody who has no rights that you are bound to respect. A foreigner, a second-class citizen, somebody who you know will not get an equal hearing by, by some uh, uh, imagined objective um, justice system. You will always be in charge. I know this is kind of, this is getting very in the weeds and very abstract, but I hope I'm communicating like what I'm, some sort of distinction. I hope this makes sense to some people. Because like you have, you have these things that emerge from this struggle. Labor unions, uh, political parties, military units. Uh, in, in countries like Italy, radio stations, newspapers, uh, civic organizations, hospitals. These are all emerging, being staffed by people who are alienated by capitalism, but who are motivated every moment by the fact that if they're not at war, if they're not actually at the point of spear with capitalism, they are kind of, they're pulled by centrifugal force towards pleasure, towards the, the pleasures to be had by the system, provided by them, because we have a narrow self-interest. A, in, a, it's, it's in, it writes itself on our body. It's a craving beyond consciousness. It's an addiction. We're all addicted to something that's bad for us, and that thing is capitalism. I know that sounds stupid, but it's literally true. The thing that keeps us from meaningfully uh, interacting with the state in a way that will, if not allow us to win, allow us to live on our own terms, if you know what I mean, is that we are still getting something out of obeying. And that's what we all have to recognize, that we all have something in us that's obeying. And the thing is, because we're all suffering separately and we cannot come together through communication to align our interests that way, for all the reasons I've elucidated, we don't have to feel bad about that. We don't have to whip ourselves. We don't have to hair shirt things. We don't have to engage in performative misery whenever we see something bad happen on the news. We can acknowledge, hey, we're all in this matrix. But necessity is redefining everyone's relationship to the reality every fucking day. And that means us too, in ways that we're noticing and not noticing, and that will eventually come to some inflection point. And we're all going to get to make a decision then. We're all going to have our point. And people snapping into those new reality tunnels are going to meet each other on the other side. And they're going to have a new understanding of themselves and each other that's going to forge new structures of resistance. And, and you might say, oh, that's totally insufficient to capitalism as it exists now. Correct. But capitalism is at this point eating itself, as it inevitably does. It created the global system. And we'll talk more. Uh, next week we're going to do chapter, uh, not chapter three, but um, uh, But uh, section, or no, section two. Yeah. So uh, we'll do section two, part two, uh, which is about 
like the, the, the Cold War economy. Uh, we'll do that next week. But once you get this uh, globalized system, uh, you've created it's you've signed its death warrant because it needs expansion. It cannot not expand, and not only are we no longer we're stultifying, we're now our biome is shrinking, and it needs constant. It, it, it can't sustain itself. It can't sustain itself. The degree of technological sophistication and and capital intensity required to maintain these structures that keep us all hooked one way or the other in a soothing cycle of misery that we become uh, unable to get out of are uh, like those networks are sustained by political structures and and like actual technological structures of like supply chain that are being destroyed, they're being dissolved from within by people within capitalism acting like capitalists. That's it. American democracy is at free fall because our political class acts entirely like capitalists. Capitalism has stripped all of the remaining social niceties away from profit extraction at the center, which means cost-cutting creates a spiral of Actual destruction of capacity. Look what happened with the baby food. Look what happened with the fucking, um, the 787 Max. You're having short-term thinking being the only thinking because that, those layers of latency, those layers of surplus have been extracted already. They cannot renew themselves. They cannot, there is no renewing the surplus at the rate that it's extracted. The thing that's supposed to save us, according to capitalist theory, is technological innovation. And the thing is that every example they have of technology defeating Malthus um, is in the assumed open system where the economic machine that we're talking about is geographically limited within a greater biome with its own rhythms that is able to absorb that uh, carcinogenic outburst in a global structure where everybody is acting along the same uh, the length of like one technological machine for outputting and inputting then you have reached a, a point where no innovation can occur that can fix that and one of the big reasons for that isn't even something that you could have to like refer to in um, physics terms. You can just point to the logic of accumulation undermining it. We have reached a complete plateau on uh, technologically development, right? Like uh, we had the big explosion of personal computing in the early aughts, climaxing, climaxing in the smartphone, but then it's been a complete flatline. This is, you know, This is after just an explosion of technological innovation in the early 90s with the personal computer. You said Moore's Law, like, all the, I mean, oh my God, like we're going to get to a point where, where technology is just going to uh, explode. But the thing is, previous generations of explosive technology, like, for example, the Internet, 
were the product of those Keynesian institutions of Fordist capitalism, where you had like the ARPA just dumping money into research that is allocated not by what will make money, but by what is in one way or another scientifically interesting. And then in so doing, you unveil amazing revelations and you go places you never could have thought you'd gone before. But when you've privatized R&D, yeah, there's still tons of money in R&D. But it can only go where the money can justify itself, which is into things that are profit centers, which is not the same as things that can actually advance technology in a meaningful sense. So the, even the technological salvationary, the, 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 the Musk option, which is what he represents and why he can get away with what he gets away with, because he is the he is the total embodiment of, of, of the entirety of capitalism, which is why it's so interesting that he decided to like come out for the, like and become a partisan Republican. Um, that is a bad move for him. Um, and I get why he did it again, short term thinking. It's because of the fucking, uh, it's because of the fucking, uh, the sexual harassment accusations. It's like, oh no, they're going to be mad at me. What do I do? I can't, you can never admit you're wrong. There's no way to come back from something like that. Uh, if you accept the terms, you have to, uh, decide that it's, not true, and then uh, pick one side in the culture war, and then they will protect you. And it's absolutely true. But the whole thing about Musk and the reason that he was able to just create this absolute insane valuation on this company that barely makes anything. I mean, the joke is, is that, oh, you know, all their cars explode. It's like we're kind of saved by the fact that they barely fucking produce any cars at all. Like the, the amount of their valuation relative to uh, like big three automakers who put out millions of cars a year when they're just like pumping out a couple thousand a month or whatever. It's just it's beyond all rationality. And what pumps it up is that Musk represents this escape from politics. The system fixing itself without needing politics, which is the essential dream of yeoman uh, of, of yeoman po- American uh uh, democracy, because if, if if freedom and democracy are at total uh, conflict, which is they are under this concept, remember, because institutions of democracy are oppressive by definition, even though they are supposed to exist to actually give you meaningful contrib- like uh, control over your destiny. No, no, my destiny is in the stars, total delusion, but it's totally... Uh, it perpet- it's perpetuated throughout time. That's why the uh, the Austrian answer to what to do about things like the Great Depression is nothing. It'll fix itself. Let the real business cycle handle it. But of course, people suffer in the meantime, and they're not going to suffer forever. Politics has to do something to prevent them from just taking all of your shit. And there was a time when there was enough of a threat from down below that they agreed to let that happen. But now... They have no fear. They believe that the levels of technological uh, and cultural uh, uh, and geographic um, protection that they have from everybody else 
is such that they don't give a living shit about what anybody does because they know that all they can do is complain to the manager about their consumer experience. They cannot effectively politically engage them. But that <clears throat> that model, which has to have a uh, articulation and culture, there has to be a way forward you can imagine for you to keep believing in it. That was um, that was Musk. But what's happening is is that the rope is burning below his feet because the apolitical is going away, and this is why everyone's afraid of a fascist takeover. Because eventually, when things get bad enough for the people involved. The, liber- the, the, the fig leaf of democratic belief that uh, freedom-loving Americans have uh, is on top of a much deeper and ingrained uh, fight-or-flight instinct to protect the self, to protect the family unit, that when push comes to shove, democracy in crisis, democracy in a moment when the illusions of you know, separation from the market and the state uh, have to be gotten rid of, what side will they pick? And they're going to side with capital. And they're going to be the meat arm of the machine defending itself, which is another reason that the fucking, the people who think that you're going to get some sort of meaningful confrontation with capitalism through the machinery of the Republican Party are the most deluded dipshits on earth. In the, in the world of the future, they imagine that, like, they're going to be fighting some, like, Democratic Party machine that's going to represent, like, the Soros-allied international capital. And then they're going to get to slay it in, like, their own Gundam made of, like, the, the, uh, the multiracial but uh, non-propagandized, the pure, the untouched, the elect working class. But I got sour news for you, Jack. That ain't how it's going to work. As long as there are still Democrats around, it is going to be a two-party rondelay that never changes anything. But if you get to a situation where politics breaks down, like the actual legitimate, like the institutional ritual breaks down, it's not going to be around the Democratic Party. But it is going to be around the structure, the political structure of the Republican Party. There's going to be one Gundam. It's going to be smashing us all into fucking paste as we try to build some structures out of the wreckage. The only question is, what are those structures going to be and how quickly will we be able to uh, generate that uh, political direction I was talking about, that programming that has been lacked? Because in war is when you build the most intense experiences. Yeah, what side are you on? And not what side are you on now? Because what side you are now is totally theoretical. Right, right, what side you're on now is a question that you are postponing for a later date. And we all want to postpone things to a later date. You know, like, Lord, make me, uh, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. Is that the line from Augustine? Um. Everyone wants to postpone a reckoning. That doesn't sound like fun. 
Um, but we're all going to have one. We all have small ones every day that we ignore, but we're all going to get ones that are going to be harder and harder to ignore, more and more real. And what's going to get us one way or the other is what we did in those small moments, whose voice we heard. And that's kill me with a gun parody for being cheesy, but, uh, I forgot what I said. I threw myself off when I did that. I, I violated terms of service. I hope I don't get in trouble. I have a bad way of doing that on this fucking uh, platform, but yeah. No, it's what we, uh, it's, it's my, the word I was going to say before I parodied myself was uh, mindfulness. And of course that word has been destroyed because it stands for a real thing, just like the Christian cross stands for a real thing. It is a concept that's, that holds within it ways of seeing beyond the self, technologies of the self that open the door and that, that allow you to perceive your world differently, not process it logically which is, or rationally, which is always just backwash, but to feel it. And things like, you know, I think of Christ as a as one of the most enduring figures of that. Uh and and like I said, you know, I just I said that we require sacrifice that isn't sacrifice. I mean, fuck, if you're an American and you have like some basic understanding of like what Christ is supposed to represent, even though we get this like horrified militarized version of him, uh, because he's been left to the the uh uh, the fucking blood, the dirt worshiping Moloch uh, Satanists of the uh, of our planter descendants. Uh, he already took he did the, he took it on the chin. He had the sacrifice. He 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 felt, and it was still the thing he needed to do. And nothing we will do will ever hurt as much as that. If he could do that, believing the whole way and knowing it was the thing to do, the right thing to do, the thing that needed to be done for others, including the self, in that same that way of bringing together a a, uh, a a conception of the self that is viscerally felt. This is why it's hard to talk about because you're, at the end of the day, you're just talking about how much. And another another word that gets overused, empathy, but it's, it really isn't. Empathy is just often it's just. Um, projecting your own self into other people as opposed to recognizing the radical strangeness of the other, but also their similarity to you, the, re- the, way, the recognition that you have, even the, beyond that, the, the, the recognition of the other. That is an emotional experience that you either have a lot of and it gets reinforced or you don't have much of and you don't experience we are profoundly lonely people, which means we don't even have an opportunity in most of our day to really see other people. 
We're only looking in the in a, in a phone, which is a mirror. And that does it too. And it's like, the, the, the usefulness of Christ for me is that you think about that and then you feel this nausea, like, oh my God, I'm, 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 I'm complacent, I'm a pig. What should I do? But if you follow that, it won't get you to, what should I do for it's better for other people? You will once again get to, what should I do for me? For me as the alienated subject that I am, that I'm only coming into recognition of lately. The, the, the self that is like reinforced over and over again by our, 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 our body posture and our, our emotional relationship to everything we experience. So that means we're probably going to pick something that if it is a sacrifice, this is going to be a martyr's sacrifice. Because then we get to emulate Christ. And that's good. But you don't have to. And if you don't have to, then maybe you can stop and expand the self. Love someone. Because when you're trying to get together with someone you love on what to do about X or Y, it's a hell of a lot easier to get to a point that is outside of your narrowest self-interest than it is if you're just making this decision in your own head, which is what we're doing because we spend so much time alone, literally physically alone. And since you have to build those connections first before you can act effectively through them, that means you are cheesily called to love. And then have faith that the love will guide you at that crucial moment. You got to love. How do you do that? So that decisions on what to do on every question of your life, politics being one, but only one of many, one of the least important ones. How do I love? And your life is going to keep happening as you have these conversations and as you make, you know, live through this perceptive net. You're going to keep encountering new people and new opportunities. And that's going to build new connections, new relationships, new capacities, new experiences that would have been objectively unpleasant before, now viscerally pleasurable. And that's why I think there's going to be a big place for notions of Christianity in any kind of American context. And I know that that horrifies a lot of people because of what the church represents culturally, and that's true. And certainly, like, the lar- the uh, mainstream current of Christianity has been completely dominated by, you know, it's become, I mean, it was fused at the, it was a blood, America was a blood sacrifice to this cross. Which is the demonic read on Christianity. Which is that, oh, Christ already sacrificed for me. That means I can do whatever I want. Because that is the other thing you can take from sacrifice of Christ. You can take, oh, 
That means I don't want to do anything. I don't, because our desire to hurt others is just a sublimated misery that we are feeling ourselves. It is taking it out. But what if it's not there to take out? If it's not there to take out, then maybe you don't need to do those things. Maybe you don't need to consume the way we do. Maybe you don't need to feel the degree of visceral pleasures that you do. And that is the way towards like reestablishing a political Christianity after the possibility of it was extinguished with the Anabaptists of Munster. Some people kept that in mind. Christ died for me so that I don't need to consume this way and I can try to direct my energies towards making the world align with a greater love. Or if you're traumatized by this system, either by perpetuating or suffering violence, because the slave owner is, 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 people get mad when you say this because it seems like you're equivocating them. There's no equivalency. But the slave owner and the slave are both equally traumatized by the relationship. It's just the trauma manifests itself in different ways. The trauma for the uh, slave owner is, is emotional and suppressed and redirected elsewhere. And one of the things it's redirected into is satisfying the self in the narrowest sense to keep away from the thoughts of what's occurring right around it. That means becoming sensual, becoming suffusing meaning of the universe with indulgence of the individual senses. And that makes, creates people whose vision of like godly love is totally individualized. It cannot, it can't go out to the other anymore. It is now a pure worship of the self. And that, that self is defined. Goodness is defined by that self perpetuating comfortably that self gaining the benefits of a uh, exploitative economic relationships because of the pain it causes them. It causes them pain. And this is the way to deal with it. This is the way that they're addicted. And again, this isn't everybody in society. This is in everybody. It's just, it expresses itself most coherently along the selfish line because that's where selfishness magnifies interest. Everybody else is just floating with their misery outside of uh, power. But around power, ideology follows. And that is the, what we got. We got a Christianity out of, the, out of the great split of the Reformation. We got a Christianity where God's blood on the cross was permission to do what thou wilt. And that means dominate. And it means, at the end of the day, all others are enemy. Schmidt uh, talks about uh, the friend-enemy distinction, right? Saying, you have all this liberal bullshit, but at the end of the day, laws and rules, they don't mean anything because the exception proves the rule, and the exception is decided, determined by one definition of uh, friend and one definition of enemy. And he is correct that within liberal electoral politics, that is embedded and implicit. And once you get to the crisis of fascism, it, is, it reveals itself. 
because it's the undergirding logic of the capitalist surplus extraction mechanism, the profit motive. The opposite of that, the politics of liberation that is not just, you can't really say communism or socialism. You could say Christianity. You, know, you could say any great religious tradition. It, it, it is the attempt, it's the world spirit, my God, it's every transcendent effort to build something out of humanity that isn't just the same brutal uh, eternity of, of, of misery that it has been. The, 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 the horizon, the utopia, we need that. You need to have one. If you don't have one, then politics is just Schmidian misery where uh, fascism is always just one bad business cycle away. Or if not fascism, because that's two populist technological regimes of murder. Not the, uh, you know, not the Nazi party, but just the camps administering themselves to the, for the most part via technology. And you could say that is what we've had since the end of the Second World War, is we've taken the, the we, we took we took apart the camps we uh, we took apart Auschwitz and. Birkenau, and then we just turned the entire world into one, where the smoke from elsewhere is feeding the feeding the the economic heart of the thing. But the Schmidian fantasy is that that's all politics can and is and ever will be. There's another thing that animates us all, and that will animate institutions and has animated institutions. And it is an understanding that there is no such thing as an enemy. That properly organized political um, uh, activity can create a situation where there is no enemy. And yeah, that leads you to fight in moments of like total conflict with the state and with uh, the, the, the Schmidian state. But the army you're fighting with is fighting in a different reality to extinguish the enemy. To extinguish the enemy, to actually get rid of an enemy within. The people who can't let go of capitalism. Meanwhile, the Schmidians will be, will be fighting the liberals, the, the reactionaries, everybody who's on the back of the machine is going to be fighting to keep the enemy around. Keeping to, they're, they're thinking they're going to extinguish the enemy. But they're fighting to maintain the category of enemy. Which is why it is totally um, cannibalizing. Because if you have the category of enemy always in your politics, then you will drive your economy into oblivion. Because that is an arms race, always and forever. And there's limited resources. We've done the math, I just told you. Technology will not catch you up. The dream of space flight and shit is the technology will catch up. Not going to happen. And eventually, your enemy, whoever they are, is going to have enough of a technological parity with you that instead of you destroying him, eventually you're going to destroy each other. Which is why uh, I think one of the most brilliant strokes in um, Philip K. Dick's Man in the High Castle is that he has the uh, Axis winning the war, and then by the early 60s, by the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis here on Earth Prime, 
the Japanese and the Nazis are at the brink of a nuclear war that is absolutely going to happen. Like there is the the whole book is suffused with the queasy knowledge that this is going to happen. You have this guy trying to do some like behind the, the top secret bullshit to try to prevent it. There's no preventing it. That's why the fucking thing ends with literally like a a breach into another universe because the story can't contain it. If you're going to keep these characters around, you have to start pushing out the boundaries of reality and admitting more uh, parallel possibilities. So that is why it is never good to be a fascist. That is why territorialized socialism is an impossibility. Any attempt to get yourself there is lying to yourself to try to maintain the pleasures. The pleasures, the aesthetic pleasures of politics. Sorry. Because what is fascism if not the sublimation of politics into aesthetics? Okay, this machine is going to take us. Well, if it's going to take us, I want to enjoy the ride. I want to watch it. I don't want to be involved. I want to watch it. Now, to do that means watching the ritual butchery of the human race from the comfort of a technological regime that is creating surplus that it does not give a shit where is accumulated at any point, but where you're the only one there to get any. So you're scooping it up, and all the excess is just coughing into the system that is now in a terminal decline. So if this is if you've picked if you've chosen uh, that path, it is because you want politics to be fun. That's how so many people were able to convince themselves after Bernie failed that hmm, uh, socialist infiltration of the Republic Democratic Party is impossible. Now to try the Republicans, you should know enough from the experience of the Democratic Party that the structural incentives that exist in America make any conquest from within impossible. You just saw it happen. There's nothing about the Democrats that's different. If it comes to showdown and there's shooting to be had, whatever the Republican Party is now will be some sort of political apputterance to this uh, post-political murder machine. It's going to have some branding of it. The reason you make that decision is not that you've studied the evidence and then look at all these posts and look at all these connections I've done, like fucking Charlie looking for uh, Pepe Silvia. No, at the end of the day, the choice was, do I do stuff that might suck? Stuff that's for other people and that makes my tummy hurt? Or do I stay on the internet? Do I keep fighting the good fight against the trolls? Do I do I epically retweet and and dunk on these people who are wrong about everything. If you've no, if you if you've reckoned with the fact that there is no more connection between um, political media and political outcomes, uh, and that capital dominates both parties, 
then you're under no illusions that any of the online warfare means anything. You know that those those positions exist to be fought over, and you are punching in for a day's work. You you keep the thing going. You keep the hamster wheels turning of discourse that people have instead of politics. Only can be maintained if you have a fantasy of, of deliverance from within the Schmidian fucking uh, uh, terminal liberal political system where, where selfishness has been reified into good. Sorry, can't be done. Sorry, get out of here. Miss me with that. Somebody asks, wasn't Vito Mark Antonio a Republican? I'm not sure. I think he might have been. If he was, uh, for those who don't know, Vito uh, Mark Antonio, let me check here. I think he might have been a fusion Republican. Was the closest thing to like a communist we probably ever had in the in the federal government. He had a district uh, in the uh, in the Spanish Harlem. Uh, yes, he was. He was part of the Republican fusionist uh, movement that was headed by Fiorello LaGuardia, who was the New Deal era uh, firebrand mayor of New York, and he was also a Republican. Uh, but he endorsed FDR and worked with his uh, and supported the New Deal completely. Uh, Mark Antonio was part of his uh, political faction, uh, and that seems weird, but it's because the uh, working class politics. This is actually a perfect example of what I'm talking about. This is a great question. I hope this helps explicate what some of us talking about. Thank you very much. Okay, um, so you have the uh, New York City, right? which has this, the largest, most re- one of the most restive working classes in the country, doing the work of empire building, the work of building capitalism in the heart of North America. It, I mean, it's on the coast, but it is, it's the heart of North America. It pumps the blood through the thing, through, through its mighty commercial engines. And it had it precociously. It was because they had all these fucking, the colonial project in uh, in Ireland was leading to this mass uh, overproduction of peasant mouths. And since politics was off the uh, agenda, since it's a colony and you can't have afford to have them uh, influence the political process, they all had to leave. Uh, and they came here. They didn't have the resources to become yeoman farmers like, the, like their luckier German uh, uh, fellow immigrants and, and English ones. And they settled, they created political associations, but the working class as such didn't even exist yet. There was no working class. Uh, there were just mechanics. These are essentially medieval artisans put in this new relationship where they're just thrown into factories. Um, and their work is de-skilled to the point where like the, the artisanal element, the thing that gives them like control and pleasure in work is taken away. But that's happening. Well, they also have political uh, representation. And so these people who identify at that time as like Irish, as, as cat, members of this like oppressed category, and that oppression is organized around culture and language and religion, not around their status as uh, laborers, that warps their politics. And it creates this, a, this basically apolitical uh, representation in the form of the Tammany Hall Democratic Party that uh, 
says, we're not really going to do any revolutionary bullshit. We're not going to actually change politics. What we're going to do is we're going to use our control of state institutions to redirect public funds surplus to, to our friends. And it's, it's basically a conspiracy between all the, uh, all the lace curtain motherfuckers who bought the, bought the pubs uh, and came over and maybe could hang out their shingles as lawyers. Uh, they got together and they said, hey, if we throw some fucking soup at these fucking, uh, these hilljack crappies, we can have their vote on anything. And then if we get them jobs, they'll keep voting for us. And that created the, the, what working class politics in New York was. Uh, and so when the progressive movement gets it going, uh, the energy that you know might have gone to the Democratic Party is totally uh, absorbed. Uh, it has to be absorbed by the Republicans, but, but because the Republicans are fucking, you know, the actual lace curtain rich motherfuckers who run things in the city and their middle class uh, acolytes, they don't want to fucking give public money to the mix. Their their politics is organized around handouts to these fucking shanty Irishmen, these fucking Catholics. Because it is, a, it's largely a Protestant party. So there's really a lot of pent-up uh, progressive force that cannot really be directed into either political party. Because they're both fully, they're, they cannot even give a face to socialism because they are in the business of maintaining capitalism at the municipal level. And that's where you get this fascinating case in the late 1800s when, I believe it was 18, what what year was this election? The one where Teddy Roosevelt ran as a a reforming, 1886. Teddy Roosevelt ran as a a reforming uh, Republican against a, a Tammany Hall Democrat named Abraham Hewitt, I believe. Uh, and a Labor Party candidate, the um, the noted single tax advocate Henry George. Henry George was a guy who uh, was a social, an American style socialist, which is that because he lived in the place where we had the free real estate and where so much of our social conflict was turned into abstract war against an other, like Indians or, or slaves, and so didn't really poison the well of American class relationships the way that similar exploitation upon actual fellow, you know, hypothetical citizens does in Europe. He rejects Marxism. Marxism is, is a foreign uh, uh, innovation that has no uh, relevance to the United States. When he says, we don't need to overthrow capitalism, we don't need to have workers seizing control of production and taking over the political process, all we need to do is put a tax on land, a, a, a single tax to replace income tax or any other kind of tax on land so that any land that you don't directly benefit from, that you just have, the speculative real estate that fuels uh, the land economy that we built on top of the settler project, um, that unimproved value goes collectively. That is that is totally confiscated by the state so that uh, it is put to maximal social utility. That's the idea. You, you, you socialize 
the um, construction of the urban environment, the actual lived economy of the city by, by taking that value of land that is privatized currently and public, making it public. Now, of course, that idea, which guys like George thought was a perfect solution to the political problem of how do we get socialism in a country where Marxism won't work, is that it is such a th- it, it, its fundamental premise is so in conflict with capitalism that capital is going to treat you the same way that they treat Marxists. They're not going to do anything different. And so Henry George got the same treatment and Hewitt won. But that meant that there was no when what this all means is that when the Democratic Party, which is a total moribund thing, which is basically a dead dog on the side of the road by the late 20s, is reinflated into this like stallion of the working class by the Roosevelt campaign. Uh, the Democratic Party in New York is too controlled. It's, it's, it's uh, bottlenecks of power are too controlled by party hacks uh, to let this like working class energy uh, go to the Democrats because letting it do so uh, at the municipal level would have overwhelmed their institutional power, which they cared about more than anything else. So they directed that energy towards this coalition uh, that was uh, considered the Republican fusion movement because it was a fusion of progressive, good government-style parties and the Republican Party in the city. This is a um, emerges as a coalition of the non-Tammany working class who are now agitated to politics by the, the crisis uh, and middle-class do-gooder socialist and liberal types. who in previous generations uh, would have voted for Republicans, but who, the Republicans just would have been uh, more reactionary because the people voting for them would have been more reactionary. Phil Guardia was able to basically take a Republican Party that had no city power and be like, hey, I'm going to fucking take you over. And power, power flew to him, and they were able to put together this slate of uh, reforming politicians who helped helped de- uh, deliver the New Deal to New York. And one of them was the Spanish Harlem uh, congressman, Vito Marcantonio, uh, who was, if not an actual communist, certainly a fellow traveler. Uh, and he was also a Republican. And that tradition uh, of uh, progressive Republicans in New York extends all the way to Mayor John Lindsay in the 60s, who was the de Blasio de before de Blasio. It's actually kind of uncanny. So they both get elected as uh, progressive firebrands. They're both six foot tall. Uh, they both represent the like highest level of of uh, socially conscious rich people in their given area. Uh, De Blasio in Park Slope. Uh, well, that's just the updated version of the Upper East Side, the the Silk Stocking District, where uh, Lindsay was a congressman and then became this reforming progressive uh, mayor. And then he ineffectually led over a period of crisis and decline, failed to uh, assert any authority over the 
uh, institutional nature of the city, got reelected anyway for lack of better alternatives, and then, well, supernaturally unpopular, launched a doomed and pathetic presidential campaign. It's actually uncanny how similar they are. Because Lindsey ran for president. As a Democrat, he officially flipped uh, in 72 and just got fucking owned. He got killed in the early states, but he kept thinking, like Giuliani did in 2008, oh, it'll be okay because I'll win Florida. There's all these retired New Yorkers. But all the retired New Yorkers hated him because of his conflict with the public schools, which they were all veterans of. And he was trying to be like the uh, this like Rainbow Coalition guy while also dealing with like very racially charged issues and alienating part of his coalition that way. Yeah, I mean, at least he got to Florida. Fucking de Blasio just ate shit. And now he's going to run for fucking Congress? Amazing. I love the guy. Complete delusional freak. And I love those guys. Like, Eric Adams is obviously a complete mutant, but de Blasio is like, in a quieter way, low-key, also complete fucking nutcase. And Giuliani, of course, as we know, complete bang lunatic. Bloomberg, a fucking, one of the most perverted little gremlins on earth, No, not, he wasn't LaGuardia, he was Lindsay, John Lindsay. But that's about when that ended. Eventually you get, like, fully, because uh, once the class wars, or once the class wars replaced by culture war, that kind of thing is over. The, the national parties have to fully polarize along a, uh, a, a socially progressive liberal, uh, Democratic Party and a socially conservative Republican one. That, that becomes an iron curtain that can't be breached, except at the very edges. And of course, like that 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 speaks to my point about how futile it is to try to to like fight the the discourse on behalf of either one of these movements, these broad movements, the Republican and Democratic Party, which make up the sum of our like formal politics that we talk about and think about all the time, and try to quote unquote organize around and theorize, is that it's just one part of the of the psyche of, of middle class fighting the other one. It's a fight that cannot be reserved, resolved. The, the, the fight is what keeps the thing moving. It's, it's, the, it's, it's the snake chasing its tail. It's the, it's the snake eating itself. It's the fusion heart. It's the reactor core of the thing. So that means once class war is replaced by culture war in the, in the 80s, um, the greater left project becomes associated more and more with this narrow social liberalism that has like overlapping goals in some respects with the greater left project, but is in huge conflict with it in others. But because the actual center of gravity here is the richest anxious middle-class people that we have, 
they're going to dominate and dictate the terms of what actual politics ends up being. That is why I keep emphasizing the, 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 the inevitability of an eruptive third force in American politics. And then and eruptive is the most important word because it's not going to be somebody deciding, hey, like we got a new third party. It's called the epic-based uh, liberals, uh, uh, Democrats party. Uh, oh, we're now communists. We're the par- communist party, but based. Uh, or the Republicans. Or uh, anything that is trying to reach people through the level of political spectacle is just going to attract people to a new way to spin the fucking hamster wheel. And to get back to the religion thing, the people doing that are going to use religious symbol, symbolism to do it. And I don't know how that's going to relate. I mean, because the totalizing nature of these categories is such that, you know, within the bubble, you've got this defined notion of Christianity that is fully reactionary. But as I said, this is an orthogonal conversation carried on by people for whom Christianity does not have the political connotation it does for the people who are overdetermined by their media consumption and their political self-conscious identity. And so hopefully they will be able to put down their prejudices, honestly, and give themselves over to something that is new in that respect. We shall see. Uh, take a shot. If you're doing it at home, if you're doing, uh, if you're doing Kush Bomb, Drinking game, uh, I said orthogonal. I think that's the one big one. I don't think I dropped any of the other. I think I spent spectacle at one point. Talk about a fucking snake chasing its own tail over here, me. Because I'm trapped in the same uh, same furnace as everybody else. I, I want to love. I feel love. But I also have a sense of self that is... Immature, you know, that is uh, addicted, wedded to uh, certain reinforcements. And also, maybe because I'm not trying to look, but I have a hard time seeing around me meaningful zones of, uh, of real sacrifice. And so that leaves me wondering how much of this is, is just me talking myself out of doing something that I should be doing. But I realize that it's the should that really liberates you from this, prevents you from just becoming self-destructive, which is what happens if you stay there too long. You just decide to destroy yourself so you can stop thinking about it. And the thing that can relieve that pressure, kind of like let that knot of anxiety maybe loosen a little bit, is the knowledge that what should be done is not up to you. It's up to you and the people that you love to some degree or another. People you love. And what to do isn't going to be up to you. It's not going to be you making a conscious decision because that's subject to all of the David Foster Wallace paralysis-inducing self-consciousness that we understand is the sum total of the modern alienated, atomized American condition. That neuroses that just renders every decision 
looks around the canvas, says, what should I do? Understands that everything that I do is for me and can't be otherwise. And then just shuts down under the weight of that uh, unbearable, uh, unresolved identity crisis of like, who am I? Am I, am I good or bad? And why do I care what good or bad is? And how do I align those concepts? You can't do it yourself. You are stuck in the David Foster Wallace chamber if you can't, or if you try. You have to take a leap of faith into trusting others. And the only thing that makes you do that is not a thought, a rational decision tree, because, again, we know that all of our reasoning is motivated, even if we don't think of it consciously. We know all reasoning is motivated by what? What unknowable darkness sits inside of us because we haven't had the test yet. What unknowable darkness sits in our heart? That's why you're supposed to have rituals of, uh, of uh, uh, adulthood. And honestly, we want to talk about how, like, there are matriarchal political traditions that are, like, fundamentally necessary and that have been overstripped by patriarchal political institutions because of the the material experience of giving birth. I honestly think the fact that even when we created modernity, we still, for women who want to have a child, have this rite of passage where we choose to do something that's going to hurt. Women still, and fewer of them are because, again, the decision matrix. Do I want to have this pain? When my life sucks and is only going to get worse, and I'm only able to find pleasure to break it up. Women still have, they have an option. They can step towards love and do something that will hurt, knowing knowingly and joyously. Men don't have that. And we got rid of them culturally. So since we don't know what's in our heart, We try to force off the uh, force off the moment by prolonging our pleasure, but there will eventually come a conflict with something, and then you will be left with wondering. This is why Protestantism is driven by this horrifying doubt of salvation. It is when I die, will I look back at myself and feel like I adhered to what I now understand in my moment of death? The fact that all of this is connected, that there is no separation, that everything I did to further myself was meaningless, that it was all premised on this eternal horizon that is impossible, personally, to experience. That there is a reckoning point where you have to step into darkness. And will you be able to do it? And if you've never taken any kind of step into darkness or into unpleasantness for others, that will be a moment of cowardice, and then you will torment yourself, and you'll make hell for yourself. But the thing is, we don't have to, I think those of us who, who grew up uh, totally alienated and materialized in our thinking, I think that we assume, oh no, that's, everybody, everybody goes to hell, you have to. It's like, not really. It's all about how much you're regretting in that moment, how many layers of regret you have to burn through. And the more you love, this is cheesy, the more you love and act from love, the less there will be. There will be less times when you're like, I wish I had been somewhere else. I wish I had been doing a different thing. 
I wish I hadn't done that to that person or said that to that person. The more you love, the less that's going to be there. And the fewer levels of that you have to get through, you to get to the door that was always open. The door that's always open. You spend your entire life trying to open this fucking door, and it's always been open. So that is like, I am, I'm very at, at sea about what to do with myself. But the things that keep me grounded are the things that are connected to the people that I love in my life. And of course, from the outside, you can say that's what keeping you locked in a bourgeois contentment bubble and not fighting on the streets. Fair point. But again, that is a reasoned description Exterior and unpolitical and unemotionally in, uh, infused of me, but I have my life and I have my feelings, and I know what's deeper, and it allows all those other decisions to be easier. And I do have to think that this, what I'm doing now, contributes to that because I am always churning with these questions, like Luther. I've been reading a lot about Luther lately, and he's a very recognizable figure to me. And I'm churning, and like, I, I find that I wax and wane between a, a relative sense of, 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 of contentment and then this agitation. And the agitation is just, is just the lack of, of uh, productive moments to act from love because of my you know, relative uh, uh, separation from other people. That is real and absolute, and it pervades all human uh, social, uh, the whole social order. Again, you can reach out, but on whose terms and when is not up to you. But when I do this, I feel, I feel fully embodied, and when you feel that. The stuff you're saying to yourself to explain that feeling, it it hears. It like resounds through the body. And it turns into shorthands for behavior in your life. Like I know for myself that I am much, 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 much less angry than I used to be. And that my anger spills out onto the people around me much, much less than it used to. And because I love the people around me, I value that. And I notice that my attempts to resolve this tension within me too fast, which boil down to a decision, a desire to just get it over with, uh, they always drive me into hurting other people. I never end up accidentally helping anybody. So even that short-term thing that should feel good doesn't. It turns to ashes in the mouth now, not when the darkness is closing. And that means that you can act from a different set of principles. One where Christ's crucifixion, Christ's sacrifice, means that the door will be open for you. The door is there. It's open. You can just go through it. You don't have to, the, the, the fantasy that it has to be opened 
is um, is an ego defense. You're built. You're you're creating a, a door too open to give your brain something to do. Because you you defined uh, yourself like the, the self is just uh, the self is just this reinforcing loop of problem solving. It's just a puzzle. We wake up into this world and then we are putting together a puzzle like fucking memento every moment of our lives. And we're doing it so that we can keep ourselves alive. So that we can keep our discrete body living and feeling good in all the subjective ways that that is defined as it's stacked on top of basic self-sufficiency. And that we need to keep figuring out this puzzle to keep moving through this world. But eventually you don't need you anymore. Eventually you don't have to do anything. Eventually you can stop. Eventually you can just rest. Eventually you can just be. But that means there's no more problems to solve. And the problems can only be motivated to be solved if you think they're real. And so that means that your sin has to be real. And that means that your punishment for it has to be real. As in you have to suffer for it. The material is the only thing. If the material is the only thing, then we have to be solving the riddle of existence every moment of our lives. Instead of just sitting in our bodies. And when we're having a good time is when we're sitting in our bodies. But that's not... The only time, the thing is, there's a lot of repose when you're not able to just groove. And that is, you have to be able to sit with yourself. And when you do long enough, you'll recognize that the door is always open. Which means you can go through the door. Which means you don't have to keep fighting to keep living a pleasure-based life to keep that thought away, which is what you're doing. Ritualizing distraction instead of sitting with it. You can sit with it. Like, I, I, I recognize in myself when I really try to sit and really try to, like, feel what kicks in is my hypochondria. It's my sensation. Like, I have had since I was a teenager, I have had this cycle of anxiety that I am having a heart attack or going to have a heart attack. Or that I have some sort of uh, 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 cancer. Now, the, the cancer thing comes from the fact that I had was a paralyzing incident when I was a teenager. And my legs are, uh, I have what's called Brown-Saccard syndrome. One leg is permanently uh, uh, numbed. It feels like it's asleep always, 24-7. And then the other one is uh, somewhat tingly, uh, but more, has more sensation, but is much weaker. And so I have a pretty significant limp. If anyone's ever met me at an event or anything, you probably saw me limping around. Um, and what that means is that around my waist area, there's a constant sort of tingle crackling where, you know, the paralysis points are. Uh, and so, you know, out of that, I had this, I had, I was deeply hypochondriac for my entire adult life after that. And so every time I felt anything in my chest, I would notice it. And then I would build a narrative around it. 
Every time I felt some twinge in my stomach, I would notice it and build a narrative around it. My body was feeling all kinds of stuff all over it the entire time. My brain picked a place to notice. This place that it picked to notice was a place that could carry out the narrative that it had built for itself that redirected my suppressed alienation. Because I was very paralyzed at this point, literally. Like, I didn't know what to do. I was, I was inert. I was fallow, in the words of uh, Margaret Atwood, for a long time. And it was part, and, and, and it would leave me in these, like, state of perpetual thwartedness because I was, I was too overwhelmed by the fact that I knew every step forward was, uh, was immoral, was wrong, one way or the other. Was wrong one way or the other. And that there was no right choice, and so why make any choice? And so I avoided making choices as much as possible. I avoided for choices as much as possible. Libra, baby. So that means that I, to this day, even though I've, you know, my life is much better than it was, and I've been able to do things that took what I didn't think I had in me, and I, I feel like I'm, really am happier than I have in a long time. At the same time, that everything around me is getting worse. Like that's a real, that's a real conflict to have that needs to be resolved. Um, I still have the the deeper body connection, even though I now take it less seriously. Because I would used to just think about these things over and over again. I'd be sitting, time that I could be having a good time, time that I could be thinking about anything, like the fact that we're all together in this, the fact that there's nothing to be afraid of, the fact that, oh, what if you die, so what? Like the reality that this this, this thing that I've built up is, is, an, is an annihilation, is, is, is a complete fantasy, that the door is, that there, all that, instead of thinking about that, I just reinforced the fear. And of course, that made my desire to distract myself even greater, and I just wanted anything to distract me from it. And that's, of course, why I dive, dove headfirst into the Internet. And then I, I, was, I, I literally, like, posted myself. I was, so, I, was, I was pushing so much down that, like, between... between what I was actually suppressing and then what was coming up in hypochondria, I was able to put so much energy into the fantasy realm of online that I somehow posted myself into creating a real life out of it. Which is, of course, the, the secret dream of many who, who go in there. And now I've, like, pumped out the other side of that, but I'm still connected to this machine, like... The fear that used to motivate me is gone, but I still have this life that's connected here. These people that I'm dedicated to and that I love who are here. And so I still have, you know, these feelings. I still, when I get high, I feel like these pains and these twinges and these aches. And of course, there's part of me. This little, the, little, the, the, the smartest of all the snakes in my mind. The, the, the most devilish uh, voices. Well, this is actually a deeper thing your body is telling you, which is that, no, you are going to die very, very shortly. We, we know. And that this thing you're doing, this story you're telling yourself about hypochondria, 
is a way to soothe yourself in that towards it without freaking out. And the only, and the magic formula to defeat that uh, dilemma, the, the 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 way to cut the Gordian knot is to realize that you sh- no matter if that's true or not, you should do the same thing. Because if I am going to drop dead, it's nothing that I should be getting looked at. I've gone to the doctor. I have my tests. I know I'm healthy. I mean, I'm I'm not in shape by any respect, but you would be amazed what my blood pressure is for for what I might my face might look like in terms of my redness. My blood, my cholesterol's good. I, maybe I've got something that's like gonna burst, but if that's the case, I can't get that fixed. I can't be like, oh, I'll just go to the doctor. It's gonna happen. So then why shouldn't I just do this and experience love and be with people I love in the meantime? Because I could be a martyr, but that's going to hurt people. That's going to hurt people I love. Why would I want to do that? So I can have another thing that I have to justify to myself? No, 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 I did this, therefore I deserve this, when that has nothing to do with it. And so I can sit. That is that is a that is a uh, a dialectic. Those are those are two possibilities that you can. Because like what I used to do is sit around and think like, okay, what is this? And then like try to think what it was, and then then think about things that made it wasn't that. Oh no, I'm fine. It's fine. It's good. And then I would like calm myself down that way because eventually something else shows up that you can be distracted by. Uh, something else moves. There's some shift. Eventually it goes away and you can distract yourself with something else and you break contact with that story. But then you just come back the next time, things are quiet and you have a feeling. And so it would just be, is it or isn't it? And that, of course, just leaves you miserable because you can't let stick on uh, isn't it because you don't know. You're not doing anything in the moment to know. And, I, and the one thing I always said I wasn't going to do is go to the doctor all the time. Because I knew that that was a slippery slope. And I never did, but that just mean I would have, you know, more and more outbursts. But I did go to the doctor, you know, when I did, every couple of years, but I would not do that. I feel bad I'm going to the doctor. Uh, just because I knew that was a slippery slope. But so you're basically stuck there in this thing until something distracts you. Because they're both, because none of them can be, because the worst case scenario is always lurking there. Because if you're wrong, then it's death, the worst thing you can imagine, annihilation, uh, uh, the, the self that has been eternalized, annihilated, something that is, can't even be conceived of. A, a Lovecraftian nightmare. That is Lovecraft's uh, horror, is reconciliation with the universe, which is what death is, but as a totally alienated being. Unthinkable madness. Since you can't, you can't be in madness. You have to be in sanity. Then you're back to no. This isn't it. But that once again, it can go forever, and it just makes you feel terrible, and it makes you want to direct yourself towards the most narrow pleasure you can find, 
at the expense of whoever's necessary to stop thinking this stuff. Now, the difference is, is, is this my body actually telling me something? Or am uh, I, I doing this? Uh, is, is this like a, a defense mechanism of my ego? I can do that again all day, but the thing is, there is no uh, wrong answer. There is no apocalyptic annihilation here. Because the thing is, if it's my body telling my brain this through these mechanisms, then that means every other thing I'm saying is true too. If it's my body literally like channeling into me that way, then everything else I'm saying is true too, which means there's nothing to fear. And so the question can kind of peter out and leave you with just the feeling, just the contentment, the love, the residual love. Because there is no negative fantasy to keep you emotionally invested in the question. And that is the way out of all of the, of the Gordian knots of, uh, of modern identity that views us to the worst of ourselves and, and have us recommitted every day to doing what's worst for ourselves. And to that I say, though, uh, Oh, fuck, I forgot my line again. I hope some of this made sense. I just, I just, uh, I just fucking Biden again. God damn it. Cutting the Gordian knot. Thank you. That's what I was talking about. Because you have to transcend rationalism. You have to transcend logic. You have to transcend the symbolic vocabulary of the self to feel the deeper truth of unity. And the problem we have as modern subjects is that because we have desacralized the public sphere that we interact in, the only um, like metaphysically convincing explanations that can be offered for anything in the universe are mechanistic. And a mechanistic universe ends with the individual person, the individual sensory node in isolation and alienation from everything around it. It's, it is self-contained because you've got the body sending you signals that start as emotions and then turn into words but the words and the emotions, there's no guarantee that those things are going to correlate. Mutual experience correlates them. Individual experience, it's, those experiences are not collecting to some abstract and eternal version of those words. They're socially constructed. So the ego will defend itself at all costs. Consciously. Like when you're examining an empirical question. like. Am I having a heart attack? The, yeah, like the jouissance, that, that orgasm, that is what we're all going to get. But we don't believe it because we can't talk like it exists. And that is the paradox of 
political commentary or any kind of media now is that we can talk all day about what's going to happen, but our structures for action cannot move us off of the direction we're in. I think we all know that at some level. What's going to come is going to be that which is built from up below and is going to break through the asphalt. And so I find myself, because of my ability to, to like, uh, vaporize the steam that comes from that, like, physical, the, 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 the result of the physical symptoms. Like, I feel this. Now what am I going to turn that feeling into? I could keep thinking about how bad it is, which means I'm going to keep noticing it even if it's not there. I'm going to make it exist because I have the power to do that. I'm a brain. I can make anything exist anywhere in the territory of my body. You don't necessarily make a real thing, although eventually you would. Like, part of the reason that I'm in bad shape is that I eat poorly and I don't exercise a lot, right? Or have historically. I'm trying to get better at it. So it's like, well, that's going to give you a heart attack someday or later, right? And I do that because those things feel good to me. So I am, in a sense, telling myself what's going to happen and then ending, moving myself towards it. But again, I just tell myself, well, that's true, but everybody's doing that. Why am I more likely to just keel over than anybody else? Any more than why am I more likely to get by a bus? And that's the thing. I'm not scared of dying in a car accident. I don't get scared on airplanes. I'm not scared of getting shot, really. I am only afraid of this thing, my body, expiring because it's the only thing I can really imagine happening. And more importantly, it is the thing that connects to the remnant of Puritan morality that I do have. Because the, the liberal subjects, the left, the liberal ones, as opposed to the conservative ones, they are motivated by a, a belief in a transcendent be, uh, uh, goodness. They, they, they do believe in that in a way that conservatives don't. The problem is, is that they believe that that is a punishing, scouring God who wants to make you suffer for what you do. And so if I get killed out in the street, if I get killed walking my doggy, as Vincent Hanna once said, that's a blind universe moving through, and I'm just going to pass through the portal I would have anyway. But if I, if I do eat myself into a heart attack or something, well, that was my just godly punishment. But what I, part of the, the edifice of belief that I'm now building is that there is no punishment that we are not inflicting on ourselves. And the, and the, and the, uh, Christians say, well, you can't have that. You can't have universal salvation because then why aren't people going to be bad? And the answer is because it won't feel good to do bad things. A properly ordered society, it wouldn't feel good to do bad things. It would not because in a properly ordered society where you are in a loving relationship with everyone around you, to some degree or another of like abstraction, hurting them feels bad. And all the real bad stuff we, we, we think of, it all boils down to hurting other people. 
And like, we ended up with this monstrous Christianity because Protestantism broke Christendom on the wheel of the market and on the wheel of abstract value. But we still had enough experience of religious symbology to believe that shit. We hadn't had enough science to tell us otherwise. We believed in a God, and so we had to reckon with that God. And what we ended up with was a Christianity that says, if you succeed externally, God loves you. They can say all they want about predestination and how you can't know what God wants. If you're succeeding in life, if you're favored, God loves you. Because why would God want one of his elect to suffer? Doesn't make any sense. If you're suffering, it's because God doesn't really like you. And that is where, at the end of the line, when all illusions are, are stripped, when you have to shoot a fucking uh, Pequot in the face, or bulldoze a fucking subdivision, the answer becomes, well, God was crucified. I can do whatever I want. Because nobody else is real. And the ritual of building capitalism created people who could think that way. And they dominated our culture in America, in Europe, and in nodes where they're needed elsewhere, in the big world system that we live in. And so I could be like, hey, if that's true, and again, it's connected to everything else that's true, then you really don't have anything more than an actuarial risk of ever of having that happen to you. Which means the feelings you have can be processed as part of your life. And you can feel love, something other than panic, while experiencing them. So that's where I am settled. And that's how all this stuff kind of works together in the patchwork of my life here to make sense of this very scary time. I really do think that uh, no one is wrong to be freaked out. You can argue, oh, it looks way worse online than it is. And it's like, yeah. But that's not because things are great. It's because you're basically looking through a microscope. Or a telescope, rather. You're, like, you can see how this machine is turning everyone into consumer spectators of politics. Either what I'm saying is, is that people who are now apolitical are being turned into political subjects. One of two ways either by deciding to participate in capitalist uh, political spectacle on one side or the other, picking one team or the other, or they've fallen off the map. They are no longer citizens because we have now pegged citizenship to property the way that it originally was. We're back to square one. Property and citizenship are again identical. And if that's the case, then who gives a shit how you feel about this process? And that process is going to happen no matter who's in charge. And all that's going to happen is, is that the people in the, the uh, piggy bank, in the, uh, in, in the, who are looking through the telescope, because it's happening elsewhere to them, are going to have a story to tell about it, where it's the other side's fault. This is because of, uh, of uh, cultural Marxism, C -T CRT, trans ideology, uh, global homo, or because of the disease of white male supremacy. It's the same story. 
It is a idealized magical fairy tale that they tell each other while they waste away in a narcotic haze. Participate in mass immiseration and benefit from it and think, feel nothing. It's the only way to connect. Like, if you're separated, online is how you connect people. And the reality of life is fracture and is atomization. So you can't say this isn't a real phenomenon. No, this is a, this is a, a frequency being tuned into people who have a bigger antenna. The problem with that, though, is that the people who most like to say about how horrifyingly terrible it is and how scary it is, they have no fucking answers. They just want you to feel more anxious. And that anxiety is not helpful. That anxiety is a false sense of immediate danger that has puts you in fight or flight mode and that drives you away from love and towards selfish distraction or, uh, or indulgent political theater, whatever it does. It drives you away from the point. So I hope some of this made sense. I know this is a very long one. I think this is the longest one I've done. I feel like we got some places here. Uh, and if I do keel over, like in the near future, like, and that might happen. It happens. It absolutely happens, and it could happen to me. Uh, I, hope it's, I hope people think it's funny. I hope they don't get too sad. I don't want people saying, fuck the earth. I want them to be like, that's so hilarious. Because you know, as it, ha it was happening, he was like, I knew it. But then right after I knew it, it's like, oh, it doesn't matter. It's okay. And in that, so I'm going to celebrate after this, I think, very successful stream. Uh, I'm going to uh, smoke some weed. I'm going to get some McDonald's, and I'm going to watch the new Michael Bay film to celebrate my, uh, my status as a, uh, as a thoroughly compromised uh, first world American pig subject. Uh, who is also a, a nice, a nice boy, a nice boy who's worthy of a hug. Because at the end of the day, the only person who cares is me. It's just a fantasy. All right, I might. Uh, I don't know. I might do some live tweeting. Of uh, of Michael Bay. Hopefully not. I think if it's if it's the thrill ride that it looks like, ambulance. I think I'm not, I'm just going to be riveted. I'm very excited. Okay. All right, guys. Have I hope I hope this was good. Uh, keep it sleazy. Bye bye.